Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm speaking with William Vogley. Mr. Vogley is a senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, a publication that we've written about previously on The Blaze and which I highly recommend for all readers, and a visiting scholar at Claremont McKenna College's Henry Salvatore Center. He's also the author of Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State, and the excellent new book, which we'll be discussing today, The Pity Party, A Mean-Spirited Diatribe Against Liberal Compassion. Thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. You describe in your own words the many levels of, and this is the word you use, liberal BS. And so my question is, why do you have so little tolerance for liberal compassion? Well, I try to give it the benefit of the doubt, but even doing so, it's difficult. Um, I think the strongest complaint to be lodged against compassion as it has been politicized by modern American liberalism is that it doesn't deliver the goods. Even if, if you judge modern liberalism by its standards rather than by conservatives or others, you would say that people who are always talking about how important it is to help the needy to alleviate suffering, that the acid test then of the value of their endeavor should be whether or not it really does alleviate suffering. But liberalism in action seems weirdly and deeply uh, uh, indifferent to and uninterested in that fundamental question. Um, We have this uh, enormous constellation of government programs spending uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, and yet the poverty rate is only, uh, it's still sort of in the lower double digits where it has been for the past 40 or 50 years. I think compassion has a lot to do with this. Compassion is about, turns out to be in action, about um, more about the feelings of the empathizers than the well-being of the, if you want to call it this, the empathizees, the people who are supposed to be the um, um, objects of our concern. And of course, in the efforts to alleviate the suffering that you speak to, or at least to pay lip service to alleviating the suffering, it turns out that liberal policies end up perpetuating that suffering. You write in your book about the serious damage that's done to human capital when it comes to these policies and how they undermine civil society more broadly. Speak a little bit to that. Well, I think that, uh, let's put it this way, I I think that uh, modern liberalism tries to um, uh, weave together uh, certain strands that uh, are in fact in tension with one another. The the perfect liberal is someone who's cares, because he's compassionate, he cares uh, deeply about how you are, but because he's also non-judgmental, he's indifferent to what you do, that's your business, different uh, strokes for different folks, that sort of thing. Um, But anybody who's lived out in the world knows that how you are depends to a large degree, not completely, but to a large degree, on what you do, on your decisions, actions, habits, dispositions. And a, a philosophy of government, a philosophy of life that tries to be at the one time uh, very solicitous and, and to alleviate suffering, but at the other time, uh, uh, on the other hand, is um, 
completely neutral on the question of what are good and bad ways, prudent and um, self-destructive ways to conduct a life, um, leads people uh, into um, uh, chaotic, uh, sort of intellectually incoherent and morally chaotic uh, circumstances. Um, Caring about people must also necessarily mean caring about um, and, and not being indifferent to or neutral about how they conduct their lives. So there has to be this sort of um, moral canopy, in a sense, that that guides and governs. But but liberals don't like that. They reject that. They reject that moral canopy that you speak to, yet they seek to impose their own sort of moral canopy of amoralism. You talk about the conflict between modernity and moral and teleological unity, which gets to the heart of what you were just saying. Unpack mm-hmm. that for us. Yes. Um, to speak again of, of the desire to have the best of all possible worlds, uh, it, it can be said that liberalism wants uh, the modern bargain, let's call it. Uh, and in this respect, liberalism is not that uh, not that much different from conservatism. It's not that much different from the the viewpoint and assumptions of people who live in modern, um, uh, democratic, prosperous societies who don't even think about politics very much. The modern bargain uh, goes back to thinkers like Locke and uh, Hobbes, um, and it it uh, tells us that. Um, what we need in society is uh, simply a sort of a mutual non-aggression pact. Um, I won't interfere with your life. You won't interfere with mine. We'll agree to disagree about uh, big questions and uh, chief among them religion. Um, as, as long as everybody has the sort of maximal latitude to define and pursue happiness, then we should all get along. Um, but what's What's uh, problematic about the modern bargain is that it uh, can leave people feeling with um, um, uh, an absence of connection to one another, uh, an absence of, uh, to use that phrase I came up with seconds ago, the, the moral canopy. So I think liberalism wants the modern bargain, but then they also want all the best features of the pre-modern bargain. The pre-modern bargain, the, the assumption that guided a human um, life together for most of our history, the, the modern bargain is really only three, 400 years old now, that assumption was that it was impossible for people with different beliefs, worldviews, outlooks to get along and to form a society that would cohere and endure without Big agreements on the big questions, the kinds of things religion exists to address. Uh, this is what I mean when I describe, you, you, you mentioned the phrase, um, a moral and teleological unity, a, a conviction, a set of convictions about how to live and what to live for. It was considered until relatively recently in human history that this was a mandatory um, um, predicate for social life together. Um, Liberals uh, today, I think, want to have it both ways in that they want the different strokes for different folks, but they also want um, togetherness. Communitarianism is a word that uh, has entered the um, uh, sort of vocabulary recently and is is a big part of that. Um, 
but communitarianism means that we're going to uh, uh, share the pleasures of, of all being part of um, the same enterprise, having the same outlook, that we care about one another. Um, but communities that have insides must, as a logical necessity, also have outsides. They must exclude people. And, and liberalism doesn't want to uh, buy into that. They want insideness without the outsideness and that's not a that's not an option on the menu underlying what you just described is a sort of hubris the idea that the liberal or progressive thinks they know what is best for society and you talked about the empathizer empathizee relationship which mm-hmm. is a big big part of your book and you quote a feminist and social reformer charlotte perkin gilman and describe her philosophy as being akin to that of colonialists. You write, and, I, and I'm quoting from the book, the more civilized have a duty to uplift the less civilized, and therefore a right to protect them from the consequences of their barbarism, unquote. Is this not the rationale and sort of the soft bigotry of low expectations that underlies the entire progressive movement? Um, maybe. That that sounds like a, a, a big judgment I'd like to uh turn over a little bit before uh, signing off on. But let, let's say this much. I mean, um, progressivism as a term in, in American politics is is in some ways older than liberalism. Um, the progressives go back to the time when this, uh, this woman, uh, Gilman, was writing uh, about 100 years ago, the last couple of decades of the 19th century, the first 20 years of the 20th century. And they include... Um, uh, many of the leading thinkers of the day, um, both uh, Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt, uh, were um, important progressives. Roosevelt ran for president against Wilson, and Roosevelt was the nominee of the Progressive Party in 1912. Um, what I think, um, uh, one reason I think compassion has become um, increasingly important in in the liberal argument in liberal rhetoric in, in liberalism self-understanding is that um, uh, progressivism uh, has become problematic. The ism of progressivism is a belief that just as natural scientists were able to understand the laws of nature, of the physical world, and invent technologies that could harness them and use them, so social scientists could understand the laws of society and history and harness and control those to bring about a better future, to hasten and direct our advance towards a future where we were healthier, happier, got along better, everything was in every respect more agreeable. Um, but after, um, after two horrific world wars in a 30-year span, after the rise of murderous totalitarian regimes, this kind of bland confidence in progress uh, that, that things were getting better and if we just trusted the experts that we would uh, be on a glide path to an ever better future, that sort of became untenable. It, it, it seemed in, uh, completely tone deaf. Um, and so uh, in a way I think progressivism stopped believing in itself. It responded to the wars and the, the uh, totalitarianism by making a, a heavy bet on um, 
the fact-value distinction and on moral relativism. It said that what was, uh, you know, there's this famous quote that uh, uh, um, a jurist of the era, judge with a great name, Judge Learned Hand, um, he said that, um, this is a paraphrase, liberty, uh, the key requirement of liberty is that it's not too sure that it's right. Um, and a lot of liberals have quoted that ever since, including Presidents Clinton and Presidents Obama. So there's this kind of epistemological modesty about it. But if you, if you take that viewpoint, then the notion that social scientists have, this ins have cracked the code and know what we need to uh, go to a better, brighter future, that becomes sort of untenable, really. Um, this, uh, who's, who are they to say that um, they're views or have this, this sort of privileged status. So uh, liberal, compassion helps liberalism by sort of getting it out of this dilemma. Um, compassion isn't, a, um, isn't a, an idea held by experts. It, it's an emotion that everyone knows and can sort of comprehend and admire. And um, the, the agenda now is not to bring about any highly defined notion of the future. It's, it's simply to make the world a more congenial, decent um, place. And on that basis, uh, liberals often claim that, that they really aren't, uh, liberalism isn't an ideology at all. It's just common sense and common decency applied to the problems of political life. You talk about the problems of political life and you also mentioned experts. And one of the elements of your book that is, I think, pretty profound is the fact that you talk about the Democratic coalition sort of being the experts, their victims, and whoever else they can sort of pull into that orbit. So that screamed to me in the first place, Jonathan Gruber. Uh, and, and there's a quote in your book that really crystallizes it well. It, and, and, and I quote, any political cause that has arrived at the determination that the truth will set you back needs to consider its predicament carefully, unquote. Where does Jonathan Gruber and the ex, where do the experts more broadly fit into your view of liberal compassion? Yeah. Well, I borrowed that, uh, I borrowed a phrase from the Harvard political scientist Harvey Mansfield, who has described progressivism, and I think we could say that this applies to liberalism, modern liberalism too, as a coalition of experts and victims. And um, sort of working from that premise, um, I note uh, an immediate uh, sort of um, operational democratic problem. Dem democracy uh, is ma majority rule. Um, now, if the experts plus the victims add up to more than 50% and they all vote on the basis of their uh, membership in the coalition, then the experts plus victims coalition will carry the day all the time. However, um, if they don't meet uh, that 50% threshold, then it's necessary for those who don't consider them uh, themselves experts or consider themselves victims to be induced somehow to join the coalition. And so a lot of liberal rhetoric is directed to people, first of all, to, to make them um, understand themselves as victims, even if they don't, <laughs> you know, 
you're you, you may not think you're miserable, but you are. You may not think you're vulnerable and in great uh, distress, but believe me, you are. Um, um, and and so sometimes that works. Sometimes people can be induced to feel sorry for themselves and be persuaded that they are victims, even though it hadn't previously occurred to them. If not, then the next step in the argumentative process is to say, well, if you don't respect the expertise of the experts, then you're a know-nothing. You're a, a, a person who doesn't live in the reality-based community. Um, you're an ignoramus. Uh, and in if you don't... Of the fact that, in spite of the fact that experts are often proved wrong, by the way. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, th that, sort of, th that sort of skepticism, which in other contexts liberals uh, declare to be a fine thing, um, suddenly when, when it's uh, it concerns their agenda items. Um, that skepticism is, in fact, cynicism and idiocy. And with respect to people who don't empathize with victims, then you're cold-hearted and greedy and callous and pathologically mean-spirited. Um, so um, the, the, the effort is to get people to... Um, uh, either feel bad about the victims if they don't consider themselves victims, to be deferential to the experts if they don't consider themselves experts, and through this process to um, to surpass the magic 50% threshold. So yes, this is where a fellow like Jonathan uh, Gruber is, is an interesting character. Um, he's... Uh, um, he, he shows that... I mean, it's interesting that the English language has so many <clears throat> different words, um, not quite synonymous, but related for conveying sort of cognitive firepower. I mean, Gruber comes across as a guy who's very smart, but um, um, in, in other ways, uh, very dim. I mean, um, to sort of blurt these things out uh, is, is, is shockingly impolitic. But here's a guy who ran around the country saying, well, the, the key to Obamacare was that uh, we never told people what was really going on. We went out of our way to, to make it deceptive and to, um, to induce people to believe that this uh, impossibility was in fact quite attainable. The impossibility being that we could um, greatly expand the um, both the the uh, quantity of healthcare, the number of people who were um, uh, ben benefiting from health insurance, and the quality of healthcare to make it uh, more uh, effective, and do all this uh, at no cost to anybody. That th that there was this uh, sort of magical pot of money, um, and you know, it's sort of like, uh, who are you going to believe, me or your, your lying eyes, you know? Um, and so I, I think that um, this, uh, these expressions of contempt that have made Gruber infamous now in the past couple of months are not outliers and unfortunate anomalies. They are um, a big part of the mix that makes up the, this, this notion of trusting the experts to make our lives better. And, of course, the Obama administration would say, it's not that there's any problem with Obamacare. It's just that they didn't market mar market it properly enough. They didn't market it well enough. Yes, uh, and uh, I mean that's 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 always sort of the um, the the first line of defense for a besieged political position. We just 
the thing is fine. It just has a public relations problem. Um, but if if you really want to um, take stocks seriously, you have to say, no, the problem is not in, in sales and marketing and public relations. It is in production and management and quality control. Um, and it's it's most fundamentally, it's in this idea that um, that these benefits were all cost free, that there was all of this, you know, a low hanging fruit there that could be uh, turned into uh, healthcare without anybody suffering any dislocations whatsoever. Let's talk about two other concrete examples of liberal compassion that literally just became public yesterday. There were two initiatives that the president discussed, which I think will be a part of his State of the Union address coming up in a couple of weeks. One of them is the push that the president is going to make for lower mortgage rates. And the second is free, and I'm putting this in air quotes here, free (laughs) community college education for everyone who's willing to work for it, whatever that means. How do these two concepts fit into your thesis? And then can you debunk them? Because I think the latter part of your book, which is all about how you defeat the liberal arguments about compassion, you sort of systematically break it down. So take these two examples. How do you break them down? Yeah, let's start at a high level of abstraction and then work towards the concrete. I am, and you are, and most people we know are uh, small d Democrats. We want self-government to work because we think, um, along with Winston Churchill, that it's a terrible system, um, but all the alternatives are even worse, right? So um, t- so we're, we're in favor of democracy because we, we want it to, we want self-government to uh, endure and thrive uh, as best it can. And we are um, uh, acutely aware of its uh, vulnerabilities and dangerous tendencies. One of them is that um, a a kind of a short-sightedness and a a suspension of of disbelief where it ought not to be. Um, People will, if, if a politician gets up and says, elect me and the government will do things for you and give things to you, there are always going to be many voters who say, boy, that sounds great. Um, the government's going to pay for this, provide that, cover this. What what could be better? Um, but in order for the government to bestow such benefactions, it must also necessarily um, uh, do some hard things as well. These these uh, good things don't come out of the ether. They have to be provided somehow. And when the discussion is turns to the, the, the important question of, well, what will be the offsetting bad things that um, make the good things possible, then the, the politicians who promise the good things suddenly gets very amorphous and, and, and it doesn't quite come into focus, you know. Um, so I think when I when I hear um, uh, a politician now in sort of the the um, the bell lap of his presidency, uh, President Obama, come um, January twentieth, will be in the final quarter of uh, his his time in in the White House. He's pretty much um, 
He won't run again, so he is um, looking to score well with the history books and to um, repair some of the damage done to the Democratic Party and brand during his first six years. Uh, he's trying to come up with things that that people will like and, and that will sound popular. Um, cheap mortgages would one would be one. Free education would be another, um, and. The promise always um, when such benefits are uh, introduced into the mix is that um, they'll pay for themselves. Usually the rhetoric is they'll pay for themselves many times over. Um, but that needs to be uh, uh, demonstrated and not just assumed. And um, so I, I think that the, the, um, the question that needs to be asked is, uh, how, first of all, um, how will this work out? Um, we've, within very recent times, um, um, know that um, government policies designed to make mortgages more affordable, uh, more available, can have some uh, extremely unpleasant consequences. Shouldn't we um, think hard about the lessons from less than a decade ago before traveling down that path again. Um, on community colleges, I would, I think the, the question is, um, it sounds like what we're saying is that um, since the K through 12 education system is doing such a questionable job on behalf of most of our students, what we're really going to have now is a K through 14 educational system. We're going to have a fifth and sixth year of high school. I, th I mean, that's, uh, I think that's an uncharitable but not terribly inaccurate way of interpreting the idea of free uh, two years of community college. Um, it used to be thought that you could um, prepare uh, most young people for adult uh, life and economic uh, participation in the economic processes with uh, 13 years of formal schooling. Um, and it doesn't, I, I don't think it's, that's no longer valid because the world has gotten so much more complicated as it is because the educational system has gotten so much less reliable. So instead of saying, let's, um, let's take this uh, dysfunctional public enterprise and make it bigger, um, it seems like a more fruitful line of inquiry would be to say, what can we, how can we repair, how can we figure out where the K through 12 educational system went wrong, and let's go back and fix that rather than than annex another province to it. Underlying what you just stated is the idea that liberals often care about their intentions and how it makes them feel, but they don't often look at the consequences of what they say and the policies they promulgate and put forth. In your view, given that Americans continue to vote for Democrats in spite of the fact that we could look at the Great Society and we could look at the New Deal and talk about all the failures associated with those programs, in your view, can those who believe in negative rights, limited government, restraining man, ambitions, counteracting ambitions, can that viewpoint in America defeat the view of those who say that you can just create rights out of thin air for people? 
Well, I don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, I hope the answer is yes, or at least that we, uh, those of us who believe that um, uh, that rights are what they are, rather than rights are what uh, some aspiring politician says they are, um, that uh, you and me and our our, our uh, confederates can um, uh, can at least fight the process to a draw. I, I I'm not. Um, not uh, I don't have a bright future as a motivational speaker because I, I think um, I, I think the sort of the underlying realities are um, uh, a bit on the gloomy side. I, I'm um, I think Tocqueville was right in that in in thinking that uh, democracy um, sort of needs constant tending left to its own devices. It uh, it will make itself susceptible to exactly these kinds of problems, the ones you describe. Um, I, I think that uh, all you can do is all you can do. And I, I think all uh, those of us who consider ourselves um, uh, defenders of and proud inheritors of the American founding can do is to remind our fellow citizens that um, uh, that th this this uh, sort of proud uh, legacy is sort of permanently vulnerable and that um, they should be very skeptical rather than credulous when politicians show up promising to do X, Y, and Z for them, partly because there are going to be costs, partly because the benefits are highly dubious, but mostly because um, th the notion of, uh, let's put it this way, mostly because those of us who favor limited government do so because the alternative to it is unlimited government. Unlimited with respect to the, the ends that government can and will pursue and unlimited with respect to the means it can employ to pursue those ends. And we don't want to live in a nation of unlimited government. Um, so I think that this is the, the uh, sort of conservative is a, um, uh, an interesting word. It, it can mean a lot of things. It depends on what exactly it is you're trying to conserve. But I think in, in, the, in the modern American context, it means that we're trying to preserve the American experiment in self-government that was uh, uh, well-designed and set up and perpetuated um, by this, uh, the, the nation's heroes in the 18th and 19th centuries, and uh, that our, our uh, duty, our stewardship obligation is to transmit that inheritance to our children and grandchildren. The name of the book is The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. And the author is William Vogley. Mr. Vogley, thanks so much for speaking with us today. A great pleasure. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.